One of my favorite hymns in, in all of the hymn book is the one we just sang. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. And I love this hymn because it's so very realistic. It reminds us of our need to tune our hearts to sing thy praise. It takes effort to be a Christian. Seems interesting that we have to state that, but it it is true. We are needy. And as the third verse that we sang puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. I think it's easy for us to understand, given the events of the last few years, how easy it is for us to drift in our spiritual lives. It is a daily battle to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. I think for many, including myself, the pandemic made it easier to drift spiritually, even to keep track of what day it was. When I was in quarantine, um, on a couple of occasions, I had to worship from home. And I got a better sense of the struggle many of you had, especially when we had limited numbers that could meet and could only come out every so often. It's hard to concentrate on a screen when you've got young children in the room takes energy and effort to engage. And after I got through it, it seemed like it took our family a while to get all four of our kids working together and back into a healthy routine. And as we said this morning, we know that the scriptures are clear that we have a need to gather together corporately, to not neglect the gathering together for the purpose of encouraging one another. And that's certainly been a harder thing to accomplish than perhaps we've ever experienced in our lifetimes. I think any of us are weary of Zoom meetings. I know you guys have gone through all your iterations as we did of community group on Zoom. That is, I think, just soul destroying. To sit there, it's, it's good to have encouragement and, and fellowship, even if it's a little bit, but it is hard to sustain that over time. But I think if we're honest, some of us enjoy lockdown. It had some advantages. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that many of us in, embraced our inner, uh, <clears throat> inner introvert, and some of us enjoy that state. And maybe some of us find it hard to give that up. It's hard to get back into healthy habits. But we need to. We need the encouragement. As you may have heard, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's, just not, it's not just starting well, encountering the gospel and delighting in Christ when you come to salvation and enjoying all the benefits that come along with that. It's also finishing well, often after a long and sometimes grueling life. We've had a lot of funerals that I presided over in the last few years, and it's been very interesting to observe how people finish life. It can be very grueling. 
Sometimes, like marathon runners, they collapse at the finish line. Some of us feel like that even long before the end of our lives. Many Christians do finish well, but sadly, others do not. This is true even of pastors. I remember a number of years ago as a seminary student, hearing a pastor that I respected get up and say that his greatest ambition in ministry was to finish well. Sadly, 15 years later, I would have to say that he did not fulfill that desire. And we have seen, I think, recently, many pastors, especially under the pressures of the pandemic and everything else, step out of the ministry. We see in the scriptures others, examples of people who did not finish well. And as we were coming out of the most locked down period, Toronto was supposedly the most locked down city in all of North America. I'm sure others might uh, dispute that. I think we all felt that, whatever our situation was. But as I came about that, as we came out of that, one of the things that made me think is, all right, we've had this period. Now what? What happens in the next stage? How will we move towards the finish line? How will I, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a man, as a father, as a husband, how will I finish? And my thoughts turned to Solomon. And I spent some time meditating on the life of Solomon. And Solomon is really an instructive example for us. This spoke very poignantly to my own heart. Many of us will be familiar with Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. But maybe fewer of us reflect on it, the fact that Solomon was the inspired author of that proverb, and he failed to do it himself. If you know anything about Solomon, you know that he was one of the greatest kings the world has ever known. Yet at the end of his life, he descended into sin that had disastrous consequences, not only to himself, but to his family and to the nation that he led. And that is instructive for us. This evening, we're going to look really only at this first little section here of the chapter that we read, verses 1 to 8 of 1 Kings 11. But I hope that the Lord might help us see in this example that he has given to us in Scripture, the errors of Solomon to help us to avoid them. And perhaps if we are slipping into them, to arrest ourselves and to turn to him in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look simply at these first eight verses under two headings this evening. First, we're going to look at the greatness of Solomon. And then secondly, the folly of Solomon. And hopefully we can take some practical and spiritual lessons from his example that will lead more and more to our love for Solomon's greater son, Jesus Christ. 
But before we get deeply into the text, we need to understand the context a little bit more. To understand the instructiveness of Solomon, we need to understand his context, his life. Solomon, as many of you know, was King David's son. David, at that time, was the greatest king that Israel had ever had. But Solomon, his son, soon surpassed his father David. And unlike his father David, Solomon had an ascent that was without really any difficulty. He was almost trouble-free. His kingdom was at peace for almost all of his reign, and he extended the borders of the kingdom of Israel to its largest extent that it ever reached. Now, the reason for this wasn't that Solomon was so much better than his father. It was because of the blessing of God. Solomon is described in 1 Kings 3, verse 3, as someone who loved the Lord. And when God came to him in a dream and asked him what he would desire, Solomon asked for wisdom, an understanding mind. And that pleased the Lord. And 1 Kings 3, 11 records God's response. This is what he says. Because you have asked this, And have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. It's almost like Solomon had the Midas touch, right? As one commentator has put it in the first 10 chapters of 1 Kings, it's as if everything Solomon touches turns to wisdom, to buildings, to gold. He's probably most remembered for building a great and glorious temple, a golden temple, in the center of Jerusalem was not surpassed any other time. In fact, when they restore Jerusalem after the exile and they rebuild the temple, the men that remember the original one wept because it was not as great as the one that Solomon built. He also built a large palace for himself with his hall of pillars, the hall of the throne, and a house of the, made from the forests of Lebanon. David may have finished the conquest of the promised land, But Solomon brought Israel to its absolute apex. Not just politically, but in terms of wealth. Israel profited for sure, but so did Solomon. You know, we look today at billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. But it's interesting, they had nothing compared with Solomon. The Queen of Sheba was overwhelmed by Solomon's wealth. It literally took her breath away. According to 1 Kings 10 verse 5, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered to the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She was breathless. You ever seen something so much wealth that your breath was taken away? God gave, indeed, great riches to Solomon. 
His annual salary was 666 talents of gold. A talent was about 34.5 kilograms of gold. That means that over 40 years, he would have been worth about $30 billion in today's dollars. But that's not taking into account the things that he owned. One estimate put his net worth at something comparable to $3 trillion today. But you know what's interesting is that he wasn't an evil king who took it out of his people. He wasn't vilified as an exploitive leader like Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who's famous for being so with his employees. Instead, Solomon's relationship as a ruler with his people seemed overwhelmingly positive. 1 Kings 8.66 says they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Now you might be thinking to yourself, wow, Solomon was an amazing leader. How do we get someone like this in Barbados? Right? We need this person to run in the next election soon. We could use that kind of wealth. But as we look at Solomon, we need to consider several things. Solomon's wealth and his talents were all gifts. They were expressly given to him by God's grace as a result of God's good favor. God did the same to others in the Old Testament, to the old patriarchs, including Solomon's father, David, and other Old Testament patriarchs like Abraham and Job. And this is corrective to our own understanding of wealth. Sometimes we have a tendency, and particularly in our own uh, day and age, to think that wealth in itself is evil. You've all heard about the 1%. They are the problem in the world. Now it is true, the Bible does say that it is challenging as a wealthy person. But it says that wealth is not the problem, the heart is. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. In other words, the issue is in the heart. Timothy says, Paul says, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now you don't have to be rich to be in love with money. You can even be wise and fall into folly. As Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Solomon was able, even as a wealthy man, to serve the Lord. And we forget sometimes as we look at his, at the end of his life, how God used him through his life. He was a man of prayer. We see that prayer, the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 to 53. It's a long prayer. It's a model of prayer. Some of you are familiar with the ACTS, the Acts form of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, 
supplication. Well, if you look at 1 Kings 8.22, you see that really Solomon does that. He begins the prayer this way. He says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And he goes on to confess the sin corporally, to give thanks to God, and then to present their supplications. Now Solomon's wealth and his success had a purpose in God's redemptive history. The amazing glory of his kingdom was meant to be a picture of the glory of his greater son, Jesus Christ, who would come to fulfill and to be that eternal descendant to sit on his throne. But I think it's important that we establish as we look at the end of Solomon's life, what his life was like before. He had many gifts. He had been provided with many things. And he had done faithful acts. So there is a greatness to Solomon. He was given many things. And as we consider our own situation, I think it's instructive to consider what gifts God has granted to you. You may not have three trillion dollars. And if you do, we want to talk to you. (laughs) But God has given us great gifts. He has provided us amazing kindnesses. And we have, indeed, a wealth through Jesus Christ eternally that is incomparable to anything else on earth and is worthy to consider those gifts. But secondly, and I think most instructively, we want to consider not just what Solomon was given, not just some of his accomplishments, but also this final epitaph that we have here in 1 Samuel. And we come to some sobering opening verses. After 10 chapters of wealth and success and buildings, we come to Solomon's epitaph. And this is how it begins. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And it just gets worse from there, as we read earlier from verses 3 to 8. We have summarized Solomon's greatness. A generous and a greatness gifted to him by God. But I want you to see the problem. The problem is not the gifts, not the giftedness. It is Solomon's heart. A lot of people point to Solomon's wealth, his indulgence, his excess, his extravagance as the problem, as the principal issue But as we've said, 1 Kings 1 to 10 are almost wholly positive towards Solomon. 
So what went wrong? Solomon wisely chose to seek for a heart for understanding and wisdom in his early years. And as a result, God blessed him. But what's interesting about this is that that choice that Solomon made to pursue a heart of wisdom is not just a once, one-time choice. It's a one-time thing. Philip Ryken has written a biography of King Solomon that I would commend to you. And he puts it this way. He says, choosing for godliness is not the kind of choice that we make only once in life and then everything else falls into place automatically. This is something that people misunderstand about Solomon. They assume that once he chose wisdom, his success was guaranteed. Reichen continues, he says, Sadly, many people have the same misunderstanding about making a decision to follow Jesus Christ. They assume that once they have given their lives to Christ or prayed the sinner's prayer, they do not need to choose godliness over and over again. But as Solomon himself said, every follower of God is called to keep following God. Isn't that interesting that Solomon himself said that? Proverbs 3, 21 to 23, Solomon wrote, My son, do not lose sight of this. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. How instructive that is, brothers and sisters. Solomon's words, inspired though they were, did not match his own actions. And this is a side, but I just so appreciate the honesty of the Word of God. And in the honesty of exposing the hypocrisy, it contains hope for us. If Solomon can be blind, so can we. But his word is active. It is a sword that strikes deep in us. Don't dull the blows that the word of God makes as you hear it applied to your heart. Brothers and sisters, we must not only choose Christ once, we must choose to pursue him every day in every choice that we make. I think that there, there was a movement a number of years ago, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And it was popular, people had you know, bands that they wore, and there was all kinds of stuff that was out there. I think it was helpful so far as it went. But I think a better way of putting it would be, what would most glorify God? I think that's what Jesus would do. He would seek to do what most glorified God. And that's a choice that we make not just once, but that's a choice that you make every day. As you choose how to respond to the situations and circumstances of your life. What would most glorify God in my response to this difficulty or this crisis or this situation? What would most glorify God? Because God is not indifferent to our obedience. The promises that he made to Solomon were contingent. I know you've been studying 
the old covenant. But when God gave the, the gift of wisdom to Solomon, he said this. He said, if you will walk in my ways, I will lengthen your days. 1 Kings 3.14 Long life was contingent on faithful obedience. God said virtually the same thing to Solomon after he built the temple. And then again after he prayed his dedicatory prayer. It was only as Solomon walked with God that he would experience God's blessing. In other words, this was a choice he needed to make every day of his life. And this is instructive for us as well. We cannot expect God's blessing if we turn away from Him. This doesn't mean that every bad thing that happens to us is a direct result of a specific sin. Job is an example of a generally righteous man that suffered much simply because of the broader general curse of being born in sin as we all are. But if you're struggling tonight, it is wise to examine yourself as the psalmist encourages us in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Solomon, amazingly, didn't even follow his own wisdom, his own wise saying. Proverbs 19, verse 27 says, Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Consider with me closely the heart, though, of Solomon's folly. What is the character of Solomon's offense? Verse 2 has it. It says... Verse 2 puts it, Surely you will turn away your heart after their gods. This is the warning that he has as he's been enticed by his foreign wives as they have sought to continue in their idolatry. He is following after them. And it's exactly what happens. Look at verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away, his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. And then in verse 5, it goes on. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddesses of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. This is exactly what happens when we turn away from God. And it gets worse and worse. Del Ralph Davidson, summarizing the passage here, says this, Solomon built cozy chapels for his pagan wives so that they could carry on their literally damned worship, burning incest and sacrifices to Chemosh, Molech, or whatever. It's bad enough that Solomon married these women, which was, in a sense, breaking the seventh commandment by committing adultery. But he also began to worship their idols, thereby breaking both the first and second commandments. 
which forbids the worship of other gods. Solomon's polygamy turned him into a polytheist. The Bible does not explicitly address polygamy. Maybe Bill pointed this out. But if you look in the scriptures, everyone who engages in this practice ends in great trial and difficulty. The, the model that is presented for us in the scriptures is to be the husband of one wife. And he was certainly, Israelites were certainly forbidden from marrying wives of other gods, of other nations, of other peoples. And here, Solomon, the king, the supposed example, does exactly that. He goes after Ashereth and after Milcom. Just so you know, Ashereth was the sex god of the Canaanites. Milcom is less familiar, although some scholars identify him with Molech, who is worshipped with child sacrifices. These were not innocent dalliances. These were wicked acts. Nevertheless, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Verse 7 and 8. The mountain east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives, which stands directly opposite the Temple Mount. Thus Solomon is practicing these wickednesses in sight of the very Temple Mount, the place where God was to be worshipped. What Solomon did was clearly wicked. Verse 6 is very clear. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. But it was foolish. It was foolish because it went against the commandments of God. And because it made no sense. Why worship the gods of nations you have conquered? These were all nations that were under some sort of treaty or even more so that that had been conquered and had been sending these women in order to sue for peace. They were political marriages. It's not as if the God of the Hittites had given the Hittites victory over Israel. No, it's not as if Ashereth or Milcom had beaten him. No, Throughout the scriptures, we see that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, had conquered them all. So why worship them? Do you ask yourself that as you confront your own sin? Why do I do what I'm doing? Sin is utter folly. But it doesn't mean that we don't do it just because we may have wisdom in other areas. I think this is important for us to understand. The biblical concept of a fool is not intellectual. It doesn't mean that you're stupid, that you can't add 2 plus 2 and know that it equals 4. The Bible's concept of the fool is not to do with intelligence. The fool is the one that does not acknowledge that he is accountable to God or does not live as if he is accountable to God. In fact... The Psalms say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And to sin 
is to act foolishly as if you are not accountable for your actions. Because newsflash, you absolutely are. But what happened? How could this have happened to Solomon? Well, this is where we need to consider the advice that the scriptures give us. In fact, in Solomon's own words, that we're called to guard the wellsprings of our heart. And that's because sin is often a subtle thing. It's subtle because it's internal. This term heart in the Hebrew lavav occurs five times in verses two to four. They will turn away your heart, verse two. Then his wives turn away his heart, lavav, verse three. His wives turned his heart, verse four. His heart was not completely with Yahweh his God as the heart of David his father was, verse four. Now, when we have this term, again in the scriptures, this term heart, lavav, the Bible has a bigger idea. In our, in our contemporary culture, it's, it's our feelings, right? Oh, my heart, right? Bounding, right? Oh, you know, the emotional aspect. But this is not where the Bible situates the heart. It's part of it. The Bible has a bigger heart. It means the willing, loving, thinking center of a person. Davis puts it this way. The Bible does not separate the head or brains or mind and heart. Rather, the head is in the heart. The fixation on the heart in this text does tell us that we are dealing with the invisible and internal. I think sometimes it's interesting for us to see exactly where we are. We understand that the heart is the target as we look at the New Testament where Jesus explains the seventh commandment. And he says it's not just the physical act of sex with a woman outside of your marriage that is adultery. It is the thought, it is the thinking that sin emanates out of the heart. Or murder is not just the act of physically killing someone, but hating your brother, calling him Raka in your heart. But here we are in the Old Testament. And it's the same thing. It is the heart that matters. It is the heart that is the issue with Solomon. Jesus is direct in Matthew 7. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is where fundamentalism gets it wrong. Fundamentalism believes that the sin is out there in the world. It's externals. It's what things look like. The Bible says God looks on the heart. That's how God chose David. He looked on his heart. God's concerned, not just with what you do externally. He's concerned about what you think, how you proceed, how you process. Sin begins in the hidden depths of man. Again, Davis puts it this way. He says, long before you see a, a new Chemish chapel going up outside Jerusalem, a royal heart had taken a turn. We start falling into sin long before we start falling into disgrace. This is why we need, brothers and sisters, to remain watchful over our hearts. 
It's a great book, Watchfulness. Right? I think it's Brian Hedges. It's a, it's a book that came out. It's, it's a quiet book, but it's a book that speaks to this need for us to keep vigilance over our hearts. We need to see that sin happens often, but it often works gradually to drive us away. Verse 4 has a very scary line for us. It says, when Solomon was old, his wives had turned away his heart after other gods. It wasn't some sudden attack or irresistible assault that explains Solomon's plunge into sin. No, it took years. The result of a creeping pace of accumulated compromises. The fruit of a conscience that has been desensitized by repeated permissions. Do you give yourself permission to sin? I think sometimes we do. It's like, you know what? I've had a really rough week. I don't need to take that from that person. I can respond in anger. Or you know what? I just need release. Let me just indulge in lust right now. It's been rough. We have that inner lawyer that justifies our sin, that gives permission. It's interesting when commentators put it, it's sort of like eyeglasses. Now, I know many of you don't wear eyeglasses like me, but those of you who do, maybe you can relate to this. If you wear eyeglasses, you wear them constantly, repeatedly, and you, you take them off and... I got here this, this evening and I, I went in to clean them. And it's only when you, you, you do that, you don't really notice what's going on with your glasses. And, and what happens is you have all these little screws and everything that holds everything in place. And it's almost as if you don't notice when those screws start to get loose. They just gradually come apart. And then all of a sudden you're talking and out comes a lens. It's like, where'd that come from? How'd that happen? Slowly and gradually, all that twisting, all that, it happens. You might have been completely unaware that there was a problem. It happened gradually, slowly, imperceptibly. And that's what happens the more that we compromise with sin. We don't, we don't necessarily go into great sin quickly. We often go into sin slowly, permissively. All the way through Solomon's story, we can see warning signs of an impending tragedy. He was headed on a wrong spiritual trajectory. It all began when he made an alliance with Egypt, of all places, by marrying the king's daughter. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And as the king goes, so goes the people. Verse 2, the people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So though Solomon was in power, he had taken care of his own interests and he had invested in this foreign military alliance and sought a security in that rather than in the worship of God, in prioritizing those things. That was one seed of his destruction, marrying outside the faith. 
And on occasion, Solomon would also go to worship at one of the high places of the Canaanites that he had built. Again, a further sign. God had instituted this time that they were only to worship in Jerusalem. And the, the royal commands that Solomon broke. God specifically told the kings of Israel not to build up a cavalry or accumulate excessive amounts of silver and gold. In the Old Testament law, in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 17, that was expressly forbidden. But Solomon purchased tens of thousands of horses and chariots, including many from Egypt, probably through his alliance, which God had expressly forbidden. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 26. <clears throat> Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He also carried, gathered vast treasuries of silver and gold. The glories of Solomon's kingdom became the downfall of his soul. Little by little, he made wrong spiritual choices until finally he was so old. As he was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. It says there in verse 4 of our passage. Now some people, as they read this, are surprised that... Solomon came to such a bad end. But the details of his story clearly foreshadow his downfall. Solomon's life was kind of like a tower of blocks. With each tragic and sinful choice, he was pulling another block out of the tower of his existence. I don't know if you ever played that, that game Jenga, right? Where you're trying to pull things out without collapsing. You start pulling another thing out, but eventually the tower of blocks goes when all the foundations have been pulled. King was getting weaker and weaker until finally he collapsed in a heap of his sin. But it's interesting, it was not just at the end of his life that Solomon made wrong choices. He did it all the way long. His story, as one commentator puts it, gives us a picture of gradual acquiescence with evil. The writer of the tragedy of Solomon does not present the tragedy as an isolated act of the will. He's not interested in the moment of sensuality and materialism and idolatry, but in the lifelong habit of weakness for women, love of splendor, and idolatry. This was the direction Solomon's life was heading. You know what's interesting is he never decided explicitly to stop loving God. Yet the more he loved other things, the less he loved God. Until one day, he was not living for God or loving Him at all. And I think it's worthy for us to take a moment to actually be frightened. When Solomon was old, when Solomon was old, how that text ought to make us who are facing the future of our lives, some of us who are getting older in life, to pray that the last petition of the Lord's Prayer, to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, would be true for our lives. Age does not equal wisdom. 
And there's a, a warning here, isn't there? A lot of churches have a fixation on youth ministry and love affair with young marrieds and young families. And those are wonderful portions of Scripture. But maybe we need to also minister to those who are older. To warn them. To encourage them. To finish well. It is an important thing to walk with someone down the path to death. Many of us will have that privilege and opportunity. And one of the things that I've been privileged as I've spoken to a number of people on their deathbeds is to hear where they stand at the end of their life. And to encourage them, to speak directly to them. To encourage them to confess their sins, to come before Jesus Christ. It is never too late while we still have breath to do it. Now it says here, there's love. It speaks of the love of Solomon, verses 1 and 2. Love, see, King Solomon loved many foreign wives. Many people will point out, of course, Solomon had a large harem. But it did not necessarily mean that Solomon sat around sobering with lust. Many of, the, many of the marriages that Solomon had were political. They were meant to cement alliances with other nations or groups. The text, however, is not really interested in Solomon's politics, but in his affections. It says Solomon clung to these women in love. Whatever many marriages were political doesn't matter. We need to let the background of the text cloud the point that is being made. The tragedy of Solomon's reign is that it begins in chapter 3, verse 3, with saying Solomon loved Yahweh and ends in this epitaph with Solomon loved many foreign women. That's a sobering reality, isn't it? That's the bookends of his life. It begins saying, loved Yahweh and ends. How that should sober us. How that should make us consider where our affections lie. Am I headed in a good trajectory? Am I headed or have I drifted from God? Is my first love no longer my focused love? Solomon never officially renounced Yahweh, but his heart was not completely with Yahweh, as verse 4 puts it. He did not follow Yahweh fully. Verse 6. And it didn't just go to the extent of him building shrines for his wives. Verse 5 suggests that at least some degree of participation on Solomon's part. For Solomon went after, that's him himself, went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. When our hearts turn away from the Lord, our spiritual gifts will not prevent us from falling into grievous sin. Solomon's wisdom did not keep him holy. 
I think that's helpful. Nor did the temple that he built keep him from idolatry. The Bible says, amazingly, that Solomon ended up, verse 6, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. (laughs) It's truly amazing, isn't it, to consider the man who was wise enough and privileged enough to build a house for the Lord was so foolish that he ended up building high places and temples for many false gods. It's a lesson, isn't it? As we turn away from God. Gifting does not mean necessarily faithfulness. Spiritual gifts, some of you have them. And we can sort of take a a certain security. Well, he's got quite a gift. There are great preachers that are out there that should not be in the ministry. The Bible teaches that what qualifies someone to preach from the pulpit is not their skill necessarily. If we look in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 2, what qualifies a man to be a leader in the church, yes, he has to be apt to teach, but if you look at the other characteristics, they're all character-based. They're all relating to his heart. Does he love his family? Do his children respect him? Is he respected by outsiders? He's not given to anger or drunkenness. It's very interesting to see what qualifies. Just because you are capable of explaining the gospel doesn't mean that you can live it out or that you are called to be a leader in God's house. God looks for men of character. It's not just men, by the way, who are leaders. It's all of us who are called to this, men and women, to be men and women of good character, of hearts that are fixed on Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we need to learn the lesson from Solomon's life that if you have a heart that's turning away from God, you are in great peril, great danger. You may have masters in theology. You may be great at serving the poor, giving to Christian work, even teaching in the church. But none of those gifts will protect you from spiritual failure if you love the world or love yourselves more than you love God. Solomon was one of the most gifted persons to ever live. If his wisdom could not save him, And how will your gifts save you? A lot of people, as we look at Solomon, as we look at his epitaph, say, what happened to Solomon in the end? Did he ever repent of his sins? Will we see Solomon in heaven? Was he saved? It's always one of the most important questions for anyone. Most important question for you. Forget Solomon. Nothing is more important tonight than where you will end up for eternity. And really, the Bible is very clear that it's either heaven or hell. And the reality is, there are those who profess Christ, and yet their hearts are far from God. 
I think Matthew 7 is one of the most sobering passages in the scriptures. Because it describes the end, the day of judgment, where Jesus says, Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, we baptize in your name, we cast out demons in your name. And I will say to them, get away from me, I never knew you. Sobering. People with gifts are not necessarily saved. A person may commit many harmful sins, as Solomon did. But the grace of God is sufficient. And still end up in heaven by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All is well for the soul that ends well. So what about Solomon? Are you delaying telling me the answer, Pastor? I want you to think about it. I think... There is good reason to be hopeful about Solomon's salvation. But it is one of those questions, quite frankly, that I don't believe we can answer with an absolute certainty. But I think one reason to be hopeful is that God promised David that although his son would be disciplined, he prophesied this to him, he would not be forsaken. In 2 Samuel 7, we see this. Stated by God to David. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he, when he commits iniquity. So God knew, of course. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And I think there's good hope as well. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. And in it, the king learns from his mistakes. And I believe at the end comes to a right relationship with God. And even from Jesus' own account, he regarded Solomon as having a vital place in the history of our salvation. But in the end, whether Solomon was saved or not, is between him and the Lord. What is important is your salvation tonight. Even after all the wrong affections, after all the times that our own hearts have wandered away from the God we love, our salvation can still be secure. This is because we are saved not by our own love for God, but we are saved rather by God's love For Jesus Christ expressed to us. We're saved by his love for us in Christ Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. The way that we get to heaven is not by loving God enough to make him want to let us in. But by Jesus loving us enough to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus Christ is Solomon's greater son. Because he lived his life and he did not. Though he was tempted, as we read earlier in Hebrews 4, he did not give in. And so he is a hope for us in a way that Solomon is the opposite. He is the greater son. He's the greater Solomon of our salvation. 
God has mercy for us, even after all the tragic choices that we make, and after all the wrong affections that have led us from Him. If we were wise, we listen to the Word of God, and we cry out to God, and we ask Him for repentance and faith. We ask that the Holy Spirit will help us to write a good final chapter in our own lives. Better chapters than what we see in the epitaph to Solomon in 1 Kings 11. Because by the love of Jesus Christ, the Spirit can transform our hearts and can help us. The Lord works in us to will and to work His good, His sanctification. And the message of the New Testament is that Jesus is the true and great King who properly represents His people, who properly takes on the burden of His people. And He takes our place. We are the the people with a tragic and sinful flaw. We are the ones who deserve, deserve to suffer for the consequences of our sins. Yet Jesus has stepped in to suffer the wrath of God in His place. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. That's what Jesus has done. That's why He came into the world to enter into the tragic situation and to rescue us from our folly and from our sinful downfall. This is why Jesus went to the cross for our sins. And by dying in our place, Jesus can turn and can change our story. And so it doesn't have to have a tragic ending. It can have a joyful, restorative ending. If you read the rest of 1 Kings, you see God's anger poured out against Solomon. And he raises up adversaries. And he takes away Solomon's kingdom. God is angry because of our sin. And just because we have chosen in the past to pursue him does not mean that we do not need to continue to strive to keep in step with the Spirit. To pursue him fully and completely. The reality is, brothers and sisters, we are better than we deserve. We deserve to be under God's righteous judgment. But God has saved us from his own wrath by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. So that we can have a different ending to our life than Solomon did. May God help us. May God encourage us. May God Help us to heed his warning. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God arrest whatever drift has been in your heart. Whatever prone to wander you have felt it. Prone to leave the God you love. May God bind your heart like a fetter back to him. May you delight in him and trust in him all the days of your life. And may you end well to his Lord.